have been so kind, and uh, even in these fun gifts that have come, a puzzle, a trivia book of Minnesota, I got a t-shirt this morning that said, no Jesus, no peace, and, um, and no Jesus, no peace, and, uh, and now this apron, so it's been, it's been fun, even in the fun gifts, thank you so much, I am, um, yeah, I'm very grateful. I wanted you to know that Pastor Rose is preaching over at a community covenant this morning. I, I imagine done by now, <clears throat> but I'm really encouraged that she has this opportunity to preach, and hopefully there'll be many more as uh, she really does have a gift, and I pray that you would continue to encourage and encourage her. Thanks to Pastor Edwin and Tara for being, and, and, and many volunteers who are with our youngsters at Chick, and that was just really great. I've only heard great things, and... Um, yeah, thank you for celebrating us and for coming out <clears throat> this evening. I don't know what to expect, and, and, um, but I am just grateful that you would even think of us that way. Well, I mentioned we're on this kind of farewell tour. Our stuff has actually already been moved. It's been our stuff, so our house on Emerson sold, and so we've been sort of vagabonds um, living out of suitcase and, and uh, stayed with our daughter Joanna, who's here, and with the Cotches, uh, Morgan and Jim, and we'll be with the Jensens this coming week. And then, then we'll finish out our time at St. Jane House. If you don't know St. Jane House, I hope you do. It's a wonderful gift here on the north side, 14th and Emerson. Brian is an awesome person who uh, is, is uh, more than a caretaker of the space. He's just this extraordinary host. And, um, but we stayed there when we moved into town for a few days until we were able to move into our apartment. So it's a nice bookend. That would that, be the last place we stay before we, we move out. <clears throat> I need to take a moment to uh, pray. Lord, I'm just so grateful for who you are and for all that you are doing, all that you've done already in the sanctuary and all that you want to do through this ministry. I thank you for each one, those who are newly here and those who've been here a long time. Lord, it doesn't matter if the workers came early to the vineyard or they came later. You love the same, you reward, you will bless, you will claim each as your own. And thank you for that, Lord. And now, Lord, as I wrap up my time at the sanctuary, I pray that you would help me to communicate faithfully your word in a way that could be uh, encouraging for us, yet challenging at the same time, and stimulate us to love and good deeds. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and that, God, you would be honored and glorified. So we pray in the name of Jesus with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, my subject for the morning is The Beautiful Struggle. Now, that title has to do with the paradoxical nature of our Christian faith. And I know those words, Beautiful Struggle, are the titles of a couple of hip-hop songs. And y'all didn't think I knew that. Please excuse me while I laugh. It's also the title of a book by ta Coates. Now, I haven't read that one. That one's a memoir of his father's life. And uh, so I looked up some things in light of that memoir, and I came across an article about uh, racism entitled The Beautiful Struggle of Racism in an article by uh, Lawrence Ware. He recounts some of the horrors of American racism, but then he goes on to say this, and I wanted you to see the words as I read them. 
There is beauty in the struggle for equality. There is beauty in building community with those who are like-minded. There is beauty in time spent with family and friends. There is beauty in liberating the mind from the chains of white supremacy. Black people have learned to take what was ugly and find the beauty therein. Give us scraps and we will make soul food. Enslave us, we will sing spirituals. Subject us to Jim Crow and we will invent the blues. Take away funding for the arts in the inner city, we will invent hip-hop. Mr. Ware gets at that expression, beautiful struggle, and shows how it's an oxymoron, an apparent contradiction. Because no struggle seems beautiful. At least we don't think so. We're taught to avoid difficulties in life, and many Christians believe that God would never allow suffering. There are a lot of preachers who will try to convince us that God only wants us to be healthy and wealthy, or at least have only good things. The writers of Scripture apparently did not get that memo. They knew that life was tough, but that God is good, and there can be beauty along the journey. So the Apostle Paul, he describes his ministry as a beautiful struggle because he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, part of the passage we'll read in a larger context in a moment, but he says that he fought the good fight. Now, the word translated good is kalos. It's often translated beautiful. There's another word that's typically used for good. The word for fight is agon. You see how we get agony from that. And it typically means struggle. So Paul says literally, I struggled the beautiful struggle. Do you see your faith as a beautiful struggle? Let's look at the whole passage for today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. <clears throat> you, however know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry." 
for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Amen. Amen. As we get close to the end of 2 Timothy, also to the end of my time at the sanctuary, I want to encourage us all in the beautiful struggle of living out our faith in an urban context in the 21st century. I want us to admit that being a Christian can be hard. I want us to admit that sometimes we suffer, sometimes we are distressed, sometimes we feel beaten down, alienated, betrayed, fatigued, and whatever other word that can be used to describe someone on the verge of burning out. Sometimes it's a long time before prayers get answered. Sometimes the answer is different than we expected. Sometimes we feel as if unbelievers have a better life than we do. Sometimes we have doubts and fears and wonder if we're putting all our eggs into this Jesus basket and maybe missing out on something else. If we ever feel that way, we're not alone. That has been part of Christian existence since the beginning and continues to be part of the story. Yet that struggle is only part of the story. What makes the struggle beautiful is the presence of Jesus. He is with us by his Holy Spirit. He guides us with his Holy Word. He puts us into Christian community where we find compassion, empathy, encouragement, and admonition. At least we ought to. It is beautiful that Jesus promises to never leave or to forsake his disciples. And on top of that, the Lord promises to come and get us so that we would be with him forever. We follow a savior who's familiar with sufferings, acquainted with grief. He knows who we are and how we are. He makes the struggle beautiful. So Paul is reminding young Timothy of the way he lived of the way the apostle lived his life, his teaching, conduct, his mission, his faith, his patience, his love, his endurance. Paul strived to live a godly life, fully devoted to the Lord, yet even the great apostle Paul faced difficulties. He lived out his calling and faced persecution. He suffered. This very letter is being written from a Roman prison. Paul tells Timothy what amounts to a proverb. He says something that's generally true. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is part of the Bible that the prosperity gospel teachers fail to read or understand. This is not a verse that's going to pack in a crowd. Paul is telling Timothy uh, not not the way to uh, package and sell his message. Everyone who wants to live godly will be persecuted. We have sisters and brothers around the world who understand Paul's words way better than we do. You can do an internet search right now and find stories of Christians who are suffering or who have died in places like China, North Korea, Syria, Democratic Republic of Congo, a lot of places. I was talking to our sister Khan Nguyen about, well, through internet, and she was sharing about a Congolese pastor who's suffering because of his witness. I mean, there's numbers that are disputed for sure. The Roman Catholic Church says there have been about 10,000 martyrs a year in the last 10 years. Now, even if that number's inflated, even if it's double the actual number, there are still many Christians who live in conflict zones who are constantly in the line of fire. They understand well that it is a struggle to live a godly life. 
And Paul mentions evildoers and imposters who are behind much of the struggle. Opposition is real. But at the end of verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul relates the beautiful part of the struggle. After mentioning his sufferings, he says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And that's part of what our kids were trying to learn in VBS with the shipwreck thing, that, that the Lord is there to rescue us in times of struggles. We still have to go through, but the Lord is there. The beautiful struggle comes with the promise of deliverance by our Savior Jesus. Along the way, we have help. So Paul tells Timothy, stick with what you've learned from the word of God and the people who taught it to you. And look how Paul describes the word. He says that it's able to make you wise in the way of salvation. And then he claims that the scripture comes at God's initiation. He says scripture is God-breathed. That's a metaphorical way of saying that the Holy Spirit prompted the writing of the scripture. Now, the word inspired today for us sounds like something emotional, like we do something. Oh, I was inspired to go run to the store and pick up something. But the Latin root of inspiration is the same as perspiration, same as respiration. The Latin root has to do with breathing. And when it comes to God breathing, that relates to the movement of the spirit. The word for breath and spirit is the same. Paul says that the spirit is behind the scriptures. Before I move on, I want to say a few words about the scriptures. Now, we were blessed to have Dr. Greg Boyd here on Wednesday night. He's a friend of our ministry. It's been so since the beginning. And uh, our, our, our Bible study, which meets in the lobby on Wednesday nights, our School of Biblical Studies, we've been averaging maybe about 18 to 20 people. And we kept coming up with some questions from the Old Testament about uh, violence in the Old Testament. And sometimes people would ask, well, what's Greg Boyd saying in his book about that? What is that? I said, well, let's just get Greg to come. And I asked him and he said, sure, he'd love to come. And the thing I really appreciated is that I think there were probably about 50 of us here that night in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, and he, he gave us the same you know, enthusiastic message, he would give 2,000 people. I really appreciated that. He didn't like look at the crowd and say, oh, it's not big enough for me to give my best. I really appreciated that. He was trying to help us, the church, read the scriptures more accurately, even if some of what he says is difficult for us to grasp, because we're far removed from the writing of the biblical text. I mean, if we're honest, we have to admit that there's much we don't know or understand. We're removed by language. We're removed by geography. We're removed by culture and practice. There's a lot we don't know or understand if we're honest. But even so, the beautiful struggle with the word is that God will work with us in our confusion because he honors our pursuit of the truth. So I want to point out that the Bible is, is the word of God like Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the divine logos, the word made flesh. And the church has long affirmed for 2,000 years that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He faced typical human limitations. He got hungry. He had to go to the bathroom. He walked on those dusty roads. He didn't hover over them. He felt pain in his body and in his soul. He was fully human. Yet he is fully God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God, fully divine. Similarly, the scriptures are a product of the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, and human beings. The human beings were not just arms with pens in them. They were people who thought, who felt, who wondered, who sinned, yet God used imperfect humans to write in human language with human tools in the real world to point to heavenly things and ultimately to point to God. Another thing 
is that the word scripture, as Paul used it, referred to what we would call the Old Testament. It's what Jesus quoted. It's what other New Testament writers quoted. Emperor Nero executed Paul around 64, AD 64. The gospels weren't even written yet. Most of the New Testament wasn't written. So the word scripture could not refer to what we call the New Testament. It didn't exist at the time. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was thinking of the Old Testament. It didn't take long, however, for the church to see something special happened in the ministry of Jesus, and they included the words of the New Testament alongside that of the Old. And I hope we can see that all of God's word, Old and New Testament, are profitable, as Paul would say, useful. The scriptures guide us, teach us, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, he says, so we can be fully equipped servants of God. So here we are with the scriptures that are God-breathed, prompted by the Holy Spirit, both testaments useful for us and a tool for us in this beautiful struggle. And of course, tools need to be put to use. Paul acknowledges that the beautiful struggle will one day come to an end. And at the start of chapter four, he points to the future. He says, Jesus will come again one day. He will appear to judge the living and the dead. Throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus as judge who's going to make what's wrong right, who will punish evildoers, who will reward those who follow him. And Jesus, according to Matthew 25 and many other places, will pay attention to what people did for him and did in his name. At the end, the kingdom will come in its fullness. Jesus will reign in the new Jerusalem for all eternity. Because these things will happen, because these things are true, Paul then goes on to charge Timothy and, and consequently charge us to preach the word, he says. No matter what's going on in season or out of season, which is to say whether it's fashionable or not. And I think we're in a season where preaching the Bible isn't particularly fashionable. Some people would rather the preacher talk self-help stuff. It seems more entertaining. Or make political commentary all the time because that's where we're agitated and we want that. Paul calls people like that who have these particular idiosyncratic preferences. He says they're people whose ears tingle or itch, meaning they only want to hear what satisfies them or makes them feel good. We are in that season. A young woman here told me a couple of weeks ago that she's visited many churches before coming to the sanctuary. And she said, and many preachers don't even pick up a Bible to read from it. We see that another aspect of the beautiful struggle is preaching the word when many people will not want to hear it. That's what Paul's talking about here at the beginning of chapter four. Now, you've been making me cry tears of joy as we say these long goodbyes. And last week, an elder, Erica Jensen, made me laugh when she talked about how seriously I take scripture. I try to point to you about the background of things and about the words. And I know there are a lot of people who don't care about such things, but I hope that knowledge can help and not hurt. So no, and no matter who is preaching from this pulpit, as a community, just keep on thirsting for the word of God. Make sure that we as a community preach the word, not, not just on Sunday mornings, but whenever you have the opportunity. Now, I understand the word preach has negative connotations in our society. You know, Madonna, Papa, don't preach. But Paul says 
that God's inspired word must be communicated. It must be proclaimed. It must be preached. How can anyone call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in, the, in that one uh, if they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Keep preaching the word, whether it's popular or not. So far, what are we seeing about this beautiful struggle? Living godly means inviting persecution and suffering. But the beautiful struggle is also about the Lord being with us and able to deliver us. The struggle is also about using the word of God as a tool to handle the ups and downs of life. And it means proclaiming it even when it's not popular. Finally, Paul makes clear that we should stay in this beautiful struggle because there's a reward for endurance. Now, verses six to eight are among the saddest and most poignant in the New Testament to me. I'm going to read them once again. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Those are powerful and beautiful words as Paul is getting ready for his execution. Before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he delivered that powerful sermon where he seemed to be wondering out loud if he would live much longer. I want to remind us of the words of it, but I'm not going to play a clip of Dr. King preaching because when you're preaching, you don't show a clip of a better preacher. So, <laughs> so I'll just remind you of what he says. <clears throat> and then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen. All those powerful words. Amen. The words, the words still make us tingle. And Dr. King seemed to have anticipated the plot against him, or at least the possibility of his death. So this past spring, I was on that Sankofa journey, and we stopped at the Lorraine Motel, and I spent a fair amount of time looking at that balcony and just imagining. I have no clue what it's like to feel that a violent death is about to come. Dr. King was in a similar place as the Apostle Paul. Because Paul seemed to know that his time was up. Here he is in prison. 
but he knew that he had not wasted his life. He gave it as a sacrifice. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, a libation. And he goes on to say that he struggled the beautiful struggle and finished the race, but he knows that his death is not the end of the story. Paul knows that he will receive a reward. He will be crowned a victor in the Christian race. Amen. We used to sing as a kid, when the battle is over, we shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. When the battle is over, we shall wear a crown in the new Jerusalem. That was one of the old choruses they would sing. We all get that victor's wreath. Paul knows that the crown isn't just for him. It isn't just for any special people. It's for all of us. The number that's too numerous to number, we will receive that victory crown for sticking with this beautiful struggle and seeing it through to the end. Amen. People of God, stay in the struggle. Don't give up and don't give in. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Now, sisters and brothers, I just want to confess some things here. I don't want it to sound arrogant or anything, but as I leave, I really want you to think of me if you, as you read 3.10 and 4.2, because I've wanted you to have a positive feeling about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, and to be aware that whatever difficulties I face, I want them to testify of the Lord's faithfulness. I've tried to preach God's word all the time, correcting, rebuking, encouraging with patience and careful instruction. And I'm so honored that you'll celebrate Susan and me tonight, but I hope you know that I have been trying hard not to make this ministry about me. I've tried to decrease so you all can increase. Tried to lead with open hands, not because I'm afraid to make decisions, but because I wanted more of us to feel ownership for this ministry. Now, when I came, there were some who said, we're a staff-driven church. And I set out to change that to a staff-equipping church. It's the passage that our sister Vida read last week, um, it, it, that the Lord calls apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip God's people for the work of ministry. Now, I've heard regular attendees over the years refer to Sanctuary Covenant Church, and these are regular attendees would refer to Sanctuary Covenant Church in the second or third person. You all do such and such, or they do such and such. I'm delighted when I hear more of you using the first person, we. Now, I know I have yet one more opportunity to be here next week, and we'll finish up 2 Timothy, but let me say right now that I want you to stay strong in this beautiful struggle. Don't stop meeting together. Don't give up on the church because something or someone rubbed you the wrong way one week. Learn to talk to that person. I know it's not quite Minnesotan, but you need to talk to that person that bothered you and work it out. That would be the Christian thing to do. <laughs> Don't give in to gossip or innuendo. Be generous with your money. Now, I'm not just saying this, but I've come to understand that faith is demonstrated in how willing we are to open our wallets. Now, I'm far from perfect for sure, but I've not regretted, any, as far as I can remember, being generous to any church I've ever attended, even as a young guy. And I've also tried to be generous in other ways, too. That's part of living the Christian life. Even when life is stressful or oppressive for us, God will reward us for writing that check because we are giving generously. We are saying, I trust you, God. 
Our ministry context reflects the beautiful struggle. Yes, there's violence in North Minneapolis. Some people don't want to be here. There's hurting people, broken families, young people lacking direction. But at the same time, there are all these outbreaks of God's shalom. Along with the hurting people, there are many others here trying to serve. Like Sammy, down the street, on the corner. And along with the broken families, there are organizations like Rebound, NAS, many others. Along with the young people who seem to lack direction, there are those like the hot dog kid, setting good examples for many. I predict that the Sanctuary Covenant Church will continue to be a leader in helping people fight the good fight, struggle the beautiful struggle. Our church will continue to be a light for multi-ethnic ministry, for urban ministry, for the affirmation of women, for the respect and development of children, for honoring our elders, for connecting to our neighborhood in honest and not self-serving ways. And in doing so, I believe God will add to our number, God will pay off the mortgage, God will provide all that we need because it's God who makes the struggle beautiful. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So as I wrap up, I just want to say I love you. I love you, Sanctuary Covenant Church. And God bless you as you struggle this beautiful struggle. Lord, I want to give you thanks for this time. Lord, I thank you for every person here and the families and ministries and households they represent. I thank you, Lord God, for what you've been doing through the sanctuary. It's been awesome to see how we've grown in depth and in love for one another, love for your people, love for this community, love for you. And Lord, I pray your continued blessings on this fellowship. I pray, Lord God, that... uh, It would never be about any one person except Jesus. It would never be about how great and awesome we are, but about how great and awesome you are. And Lord, as we keep lifting you up, you will do all the work that's necessary for us to enjoy what you have for us, what you intend for us, and for us to endure the beautiful struggle. So we trust you, Lord God. We trust you with our lives individually and in our life collectively as a whole. Have your way, Lord God. Speak to us. Move in us. Empower us. Fill us with your spirit so we're all that we need to be. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you, sisters and brothers. Thank you. I want to extend an opportunity for prayer to some folks who might be really seriously experiencing.